welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and today, a story from Rudyard Kipling called At the Pit's Mouth. In this story, he refers to a tertium quid, which refers to an unidentified third element that is in combination with two known ones. In human relationships, it's person number three. And now, our story, At the Pit's Mouth, by Rudyard Kipling. Men say it was a stolen tide. The Lord that sent it, he knows all. But in mine ear will I abide the message that the bells let fall. And awesome bells they were to me that in the dark rang Enderby. John Angelo. Once upon a time there was a man and his wife and a tertium quid. All three were unwise, but the wife was the unwisest. The man should have looked after his wife, who should have avoided the tertium quid, who, again, should have married a wife of his own, after clean and open flirtations, to which nobody can possibly object, round Jacko or Observatory Hill. When you see a young man with his pony in a white lather and his hat on the back of his head, flying downhill at fifteen miles an hour to meet a girl who will be properly surprised to meet him, you naturally approve of that young man, and wish him staff appointments, and take an interest in his welfare, and, as the proper time comes, Give them sugar-tongs or side-saddles according to your means and generosity. The tertium quid flew downhill on horseback, but it was to meet the man's wife, and when he flew uphill it was for the same end. The man was in the plains, earning money for his wife to spend on dresses and four hundred rupee bracelets, and inexpensive luxuries of that kind. He worked very hard, and sent her a letter or a postcard daily. She also wrote to him daily, and said that she was longing for him to come up to Simla. The tertium quid used to lean over her shoulder and laugh as she wrote the notes. Then the two would ride to the post office together. Now, Simla is a strange place, and its customs are peculiar. Nor is any man who has not spent at least ten seasons there qualified to pass judgment on circumstantial evidence, which is the most untrustworthy in the courts. For those reasons, and for others which need not appear, I decline to state positively whether there was anything irretrievably wrong in the relations between the man's wife and the tertium quid. If there was, and hereon you must form your own opinion, it was the man's wife's fault. She was kittenish in her manners, wearing generally an air of soft and fluffy innocence. But she was deadly learned and evil instructed, and, now and again, when the mask dropped, men saw this, shuddered, and almost drew back. Men are occasionally particular, and the least particular men are always the most exacting. Simla is eccentric in its fashion of treating friendships. Certain attachments which have set and crystallized through half a dozen seasons acquire almost the sanctity of the marriage bond, and are revered as such. Again, certain attachments equally old, and, to all appearance, equally venerable, never seem to win any recognized official status, while a chance sprung acquaintance, not two months born, steps into the place which by right belongs to the senior. There is no law reducible to print which regulates these affairs. Some people have a gift which secures them infinite toleration, and others have not. The man's wife had not. If she looked over the garden wall, for instance, women taxed her with stealing their husbands. She complained pathetically that she was not allowed to choose her own friends. When she put up her big white muff to her lips, "'and gazed over it and under her eyebrows at you as she said this thing, "'you felt that she had been infamously misjudged, 
and that all other women's instincts were all wrong, which was absurd. She was not allowed to own the tertium quid in peace, and was so strangely constructed that she would not have enjoyed peace had she been so permitted. She preferred some semblance of intrigue to cloak even her most commonplace actions. After two months of riding, first round Jacko, then Elysium, then Summer Hill, then Observatory Hill, then under Jutog, and lastly up and down the cart road as far as the Terra Debbie gap in the dusk, she said to the tertium quid, Frank, people say we are too much together, and people are so horrid. The tertium quid pulled his mustache and replied that horrid people were unworthy of the consideration of nice people. But they have done more than talk. They've written to my hubby. I'm sure of it, said the man's wife. And she pulled a letter from her husband out of her saddle pocket and gave it to the tertium quid. It was an honest letter, written by an honest man, then stewing in the plains on two hundred rupees a month, for he allowed his wife eight hundred and fifty, and in a silk banyan and cotton trousers. It said that, perhaps, she had not thought of the unwisdom of allowing her name to be so generally coupled with the tertium quids, that she was too much of a child to understand the dangers of that sort of thing, that he, her husband, was the last man in the world to interfere jealously with her little amusements and interests, but that it would be better were she to drop the tertium quid quietly, and for her husband's sake. The letter was sweetened with many pretty little pet names, and it amused the tertium quid considerably. He and she laughed over it, so the Jew, fifty yards away, while the horses slouched along side by side. Their conversation was not worth reporting. The upshot of it was that, next day, no one saw the man's wife and the tertium quid together. They had both gone down to the cemetery, which, as a rule, is only visited officially by the inhabitants of Simla. A Simla funeral with the clergyman riding, the mourners riding, and the coffin creaking as it swings between the bearers, is one of the most depressing things on this earth, particularly when the procession passes under the wet, dank dip between the Rockcliffe Hotel, where the sun is shut out and all the hill streams are wailing and weeping together as they go down the valleys. Occasionally folk tend the graves, but we in India shift and are transferred so often that, at the end of the second year, the dead have no friend, only acquaintances who are far too busy amusing themselves up the hill to attend to old partners. The idea of using a cemetery as a rendezvous is distinctly a feminine one, a man would have said simply, Let people talk. We'll go down the mall. A woman is made differently, especially if she be such a woman as the man's wife. She and the tertium quid enjoyed each other's society among the graves of men and women whom they had known and danced with aforetime. They used to take a big horse blanket and sit on the grass a little to the left of the lower end, where there is a dip in the ground, and where the occupied graves stop short, and the ready-made ones are not ready. Each well-regulated Indian cemetery keeps half a dozen graves permanently open for contingencies and incidental wear and tear. In the hills, these are more usually baby size, because children who come up weakened and sick from the plains often succumb to the effects of the rains in the hills, or get pneumonia from their ayahs taking them through damp pine woods after the sun is set in cantonments. Of course, the man size is more in request. These arrangements varying with the climate and population. One day, when the man's wife and the tertium quid had just arrived in the cemetery, they saw some coolies breaking ground. They had marked out a full-size grave, and the tertium quid asked them whether any sahib was sick. They said that they did not know, but it was an order that they should dig a sahib's grave. "'Work away,' said the tertium quid, "'and let's see how it's done.' The coolies worked away, 
and the man's wife and the tertium quid watched and talked for a couple of hours while the grave was being deepened. Then a coolie, taking the earth in baskets as it was thrown up, jumped over the grave. "'That's queer,' said the tertium quid. "'Where's my ulster?' "'What's queer?' said the man's wife. "'I've got a chill down my back, just as if a goose had walked over my grave.' "'Why do you look at the thing, then?' said the man's wife. "'Let's go.' The tertium quid stood at the head of the grave, and stared without answering for a space. Then he said, dropping a pebble down, "'It is nasty and cold, horribly cold. I don't think I shall come to the cemetery any more. I don't think grave-digging is cheerful.' The two talked and agreed that the cemetery was depressing. They also arranged for a ride next day out from the cemetery through the Mashobra Tunnel up to Fagu and back because all the world was going to a garden party at the Viceregal Lodge, and all the people of Mashobra would go too. Coming up the cemetery road, the tertium quid's horse tried to bolt uphill, being tired with standing so long, and managed to strain a back sinew. "'I shall have to take the mare tomorrow,' said the tertium quid, "'and she will stand nothing heavier than a snaffle.' They made their arrangements to meet in the cemetery, after allowing all the Mashobra people time to pass into Simla. That night it rained heavily, and, next day, when the tertium quid came to the trysting place, he saw that the new grave had a foot of water in it, the ground being a tough and sour clay. "'Jove, that looks beastly,' said the tertium quid. "'Fancy being boarded up and dropped into that well.' Then they started off to Fagu, the mare playing with the snaffle and picking her way as though she were shod with satin and the sun shining divinely. The road below Mashobra to Fagu is officially styled the Himalayan Tibet Road, but in spite of its name, it is not much more than six feet wide in most places, and the drop into the valley below may be anything between one and two thousand feet. "'Now we're going to Thibet,' said the man's wife merrily, as the horses drew near to Fagu. She was riding on the cliffside. "'Into Thibet,' said the tertium quid ever so far from people who say horrid things, and hubbies who write stupid letters. With you, to the end of the world. A coolie carrying a log of wood came round a corner, and the mare went wide to avoid him, four feet in, and haunches out, as a sensible mare should go. To the world's end, said the man's wife, and looked unspeakable things over her near shoulder at the tertium quid. He was smiling, but while she looked, the smile froze stiff, as it were, on his face, and changed to a nervous grin, the sort of grin men wear when they're not quite easy in their saddles. The mare seemed to be sinking by the stern, and her nostrils cracked while she was trying to realize what was happening. The rain of the night before had rotted the dropside of the Himalayan-Tibet road, and it was giving way under her. "'What are you doing?' said the man's wife. The tertium quid gave no answer. He grinned nervously and set his spurs into the mare, who rapped with her forefeet on the road, and the struggle began. The man's wife screamed, "'Oh, Frank, get off!' But the tertium quid was glued to the saddle, his face blue and white, and he looked into the man's wife's eyes. Then the man's wife clutched at the mare's head and caught her by the nose instead of the bridle. The brute threw up her head and went down with a scream, the tertium quid upon her, and the nervous grin still set upon his face." The man's wife heard the tinkle-tinkle of little stones and loose earth falling off the roadway, and the sliding roar of the man and the horse going down. Then everything was quiet, 
and she called on Frank to leave his mare and walk up. But Frank did not answer. He was underneath the mare, nine hundred feet below, spoiling a patch of Indian corn. As the revelers came back from Viceregal Lodge in the mists of the evening, they met a temporarily insane woman, on a temporarily mad horse, swinging round the corners, with her eyes and her mouth open, and her head like the head of a medusa. She was stopped by a man at the risk of his life, and taken out of the saddle, a limp heap, and put on the bank to explain herself. This wasted twenty minutes, and then she was sent home in a lady's rickshaw, still with her mouth open, and her hands picking at her riding gloves. She was in bed through the following three days, which were rainy, so she missed attending the funeral of Tertium Quid, who was lowered into eighteen inches of water instead of the twelve to which he had first objected. We'll return with our second story right after these sponsor messages. And now, How the Rhinoceros Got His Skin, by Rudyard Kipling. This was one of Rudyard Kipling's just-so stories, which he wrote in 1902, which offered younger readers the opportunity to identify literary devices like anthropomorphism and explore the characteristics of what makes a tall tale somewhat believable. Once upon a time, on an uninhabited island on the shores of the Red Sea, there lived a Parsi from whose hat the rays of the sun were reflected in more than oriental splendor. And the Parsi lived by the Red Sea with nothing but his hat and his knife and a cooking stove of the kind that you must particularly never touch. And one day he took flour and water and currants and plums and sugar and things and made himself one cake which was two feet across and three feet thick. It was indeed a superior comestible. That's magic. And he put it on the stove because he was allowed to cook on the stove. And he baked it and he baked it till it was all done brown and smelt most sentimental. But just as he was going to eat it, there came down to the beach from the altogether uninhabited interior one rhinoceros with a horn on his nose, two piggy eyes, and very few manners. In those days the rhinoceros's skin fitted him quite tight. There were no wrinkles in it anywhere. He looked exactly like a Noah's Ark rhinoceros, but of course much bigger. All the same, he had no manners then, and he has no manners now, and he never will have any manners. He said, How? And the Parsi left that cake and climbed to the top of a palm tree with nothing on but his hat, from which the rays of the sun were always reflected in more than oriental splendor. And the rhinoceros upset the oil stove with his nose, and the cake rolled on the sand, and he spiked that cake on the horn of his nose, and he ate it, and he went away, waving his tail, to the desolate and exclusively uninhabited interior which abuts on the islands of Mazandaran, Socotra, and promontories of the larger equinox. Then the Parsi came down from his palm tree, and put the stove on its legs, and recited the following sioka, which, as you have not heard, I will now proceed to relate. Them that takes cakes which the Parsi man bakes, makes dreadful mistakes. And there was a great deal more in that than you would think, because five weeks later there was a heat wave in the Red Sea, and everybody took off all the clothes they had. The Parsi took off his hat, but the rhinoceros took off his skin and carried it over his shoulder as he came down to the beach to bathe. In those days it buttoned underneath with three buttons and looked like a waterproof. He said nothing whatever about the Parsi's cake, because he had eaten it all, and he never had any manners, then, since, or henceforward. He waddled straight into the water and blew bubbles through his nose, leaving his skin on the beach. Presently the Parsi came by and found the skin, and he smiled one smile that ran all around his face two times, 
Then he danced three times round the skin and rubbed his hands. Then he went to his camp and filled his hat with cake crumbs, for the Parsee never ate anything but cake and never swept out his camp. He took that skin, and he shook that skin, and he scrubbed that skin, and he rubbed that skin just as full of old, dry, stale, tickly cake crumbs and some burned currants as ever it could possibly hold. Then he climbed to the top of his palm tree and waited for the rhinoceros to come out of the water and put it on. And the rhinoceros did. He buttoned it up with the three buttons, and it tickled like cake crumbs in bed. Then he wanted to scratch, but that made it worse. Then he lay down on the sands and rolled and rolled and rolled, and every time he rolled the cake crumbs tickled him worse and worse and worse. Then he ran to the palm tree and rubbed and rubbed and rubbed himself against it. He rubbed so much and so hard that he rubbed his skin into a great fold over his shoulders, and another fold underneath, where the buttons used to be. But he rubbed the buttons off, and he rubbed some more folds over his legs. And it spoiled his temper, but it didn't make the least difference to the cake crumbs. They were inside his skin, and they tickled. So he went home, very angry indeed, and horribly scratchy. And from that day to this, every rhinoceros has great folds in his skin and a very bad temper, all on account of the cake crumbs inside. But the Parsee came down from his palm tree, wearing his hat, from which the rays of the sun were reflected in more than oriental splendor, packed up his cooking stove, and went away in the direction of Oritavo, Amygdala, the upland meadows of Anantarivo, and the marshes of Sonoput. This uninhabited island is off Cape Jardafui, by the beaches of Socotra and the pink Arabian Sea. But it's hot, too hot from Suez, for the likes of you and me, ever to go in a P and O and call on the cake, Parsi. Thanks for joining us today for these two Rudyard Kipling stories. We'll return next week Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.